Hi everybody, Dave here. In this episode and some of the previous episodes, you'll notice that the sound quality isn't as great as it could have been. Well, in times like COVID-19, 2020 for those of you time travelers out there, life happens and we're intentionally leaving in most if not all of the sound artifacts that you hear, like kids running around, poor sound quality because your two and a half hour episode crashed and you had to use a Zoom backup and things like that. I'd like to thank our imperfections here are a good reminder that customer education isn't always perfect, and we're okay with that. Enjoy! Welcome to C-Lab, the customer education lab, where we explore how to build customer education programs, experiment with new approaches, and take all those myths and bad advice and Put them in a stock pot where we can reduce them into a fine roux. Hmm. I'm Adam Evermescu. And I am getting hungry. I'm Dave Darrington and <laughs> welcome to the podcast. And today um, we are continuing this journey. We've we've done a lot of industry benchmark reviews. We've we've talked a lot about, about a lot of things. If you've been following along, our last state of the industry report uh, in the sequence comes from Forrester. And this is in partner partnership with Intellum. Uh, if you know anything about Intellum, it is a customer LMS platform, but this report doesn't focus on their customer base so much as how customer education programs can contribute to revenue and to customer retention. So we've seen these themes before. This report, however, paints a picture that the customer education discipline is growing and that is driving measurable impact in the bottom line revenue, customer retention, and support costs. Absolutely. So let's dive in. And since it's uh, getting into happy hour time over here, we can uh, celebrate <laughs> World Paloma Day. Paloma. Oh, that's a good drink. That is a good drink. Nice and refreshing, kind of semi-tropical, good for an afternoon. You're sitting on your deck thinking about customer education. So let's Absolutely. dive in. Although if you make a, apparently a true Paloma, you actually are not supposed to make with uh, grapefruit juice. You're actually supposed to make it with Mexican squirt. <laughs> It's just like Mexico. It's Mexican squirt. It's well, it's made differently. They hmm. have a different recipe for it than uh, squirt in the U.S. Well, I'm gonna have to try it out. Yeah, I think we should all try one out because it's World Paloma Day. Okay, so <laughs> this report comes from October 2019. So it doesn't actually address the impact of COVID-19 or quarantine on the state of customer education but it is a great analysis of the state of the industry at a high level. And this one is really, really focused on the ROI of customer education. Mm, good. Um, which again is great, yeah, exactly. Because as we saw in some of these other reports, many companies are still hesitant to invest in customer education without a clear picture of ROI. And in fact, let's put some numbers against this. It points mm -hmm. out that their respondents spend an average of $780,000 annually. So it's, you know, That's pretty, substantial. Close, pretty close to a million dollars annually driving customer education initiatives, which tells me that uh, in this sample size, we do have some larger companies in the mix. Yeah, let's, let's go back and look at the reports methodology. And by revenue, there is a good mix of companies that are between that 1 million to 1 billion uh, range. So by size, the majority of respondents work at companies that are, again, we're, we're seeing similar numbers. This is really cool about between 500 to 5,000 employees. So, okay, so now now we're starting to get into the next phase compared to some of these sub five hundred companies that, that we saw earlier. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like I was just thinking about this <clears> before <throat> that you kind of have this crawl, walk, run maturity continuum, where crawl and the walk 
happened before 500. So by around 500-ish, and this is not set in stone, we don't have the science behind it, we're starting to see it. After 500, now you're starting to scale up. You're starting to really grow your programs. You're starting to get a budget. You're starting to have more people. So yeah, this isn't just startups. They're getting larger. And now, you know, if, if you're like me and you're talking with your execs, they're asking ROI. Um, you know, this is in a lot of ways, this is that late customer ed function. You're really building, like late really capitalism? formalizing. Well, indeed, late, late phase capitalism. Sure. It's a popular subject these days to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but this is a mini app, so we will not get into, uh, we won't get into a, a Marxian analysis of uh, customer education. No, I, I agree though. ROI is definitely going to play more of a factor. As we saw actually in the SkillJar report that we covered in the last episode, the staffing of a customer education team does not necessarily increase linearly with the size of a company. Um, so it actually takes a while for some of these larger companies to really staff up customer education. And one thing that we saw, and again, this could be due to the industries that were surveyed, there's a mix of companies in here, but a third of them, even though there are larger, customer, uh, larger companies surveyed here, a third of them don't have formal education programs. That's interesting. So again, yeah, this might be industry. So this report compared to some of the others had more retail, manufacturing, and advertising in the mix compared okay. to uh, software and technology companies. And so those industries are less likely to have customer education functions, as we've seen, because they're, they're less likely to have customer success. Right. Um, and so they, they might have something like customer education, but not a formal uh, one as, as we understand it. Customer education and marketing are usually a little bit more blurred because a lot of this ends up going into pre-sales and industries like retail and manufacturing, again, it doesn't exactly work the same way because they're not on a SaaS model. There's not necessarily recurring revenue in the mix. Um, so the role of training and, and customer education just ends up looking a little bit more like marketing than it does like, like customer success. But the ones who do have formal programs though, they, they are seeing the benefits. I think this report shows that. Yeah, and demonstrably so. The their big findings overall, what we saw when we we're reading through this, those organizations that had a customer education program saw six point two percent higher revenue, and there's some more numbers with that. So that's revenue. How about customer retention? Well, on average, seven point four percent increased customer retention, and six point one percent decreased support costs. So that, that's meaningful. Um, and they easily, easily report to an ROI of customer education. Um, if you get down to the, the final summary, in fact, 90% of respondents say they had a positive return. That, that's huge. And that's, uh, you know, I talk to companies that may not have a customer education program. They're fairly big. And you throw these numbers in front of those leaders and they go, okay, I'm convinced. I see the need. Yeah. And, you know, those, those numbers are, are the aggregates and they're, they're pretty good top line numbers, right? Like I, I think yeah. everyone would say if I could have 6.2% higher revenue um, without spending 6.2% of my, uh, you know, my, <laughs> my operating budget, then uh -huh. yes, I, I would do that. But another thing that's interesting that was in this report's methodology is it actually broke out the low success versus the high success organizations. So the ones that really built formal customer education programs, um, they, they, they split those out into the ones that really ended up doing great things with their customer education programs versus ones that didn't necessarily end up um, having as, as, as high of a ceiling. So those numbers start to get even more 
dramatic than the uh, than the the averages. But even in those major callouts, they don't actually call out the number one result that most programs in the other reports were focused on. So if you remember, listeners, that was hmm. product adoption. Hmm. Yeah. That actually doesn't show up here in, in, in these top line numbers. Now, I don't know, maybe some of this is harder to quantify. Maybe some of this is the sampling. Again, not all these respondents are intact. So product adoption doesn't play the same role it does in other industries. That said, the role or the report does point to product engagement and adoption as a leading indicator of success. So it lists several of the ways the customer education affects revenue, like time to adoption, conversion, customer spend, retention, all those things that make the company money earlier, make money for longer, or just increase revenue in general. So product adoption does play a role related to revenue. It's just this report, uh, I think given the sample and given the audience of it, it's looking to a little bit of a higher level executive audience. Uh, they're, they're really focused on the dollars. Um, and so they're, they're also looking at links here to product sales, reseller enablement, mm -hmm. and of course, training revenue itself. Yeah, that, that makes sense. It's kind of like a second order function. You know, it's, it's wrapped into those final figures and part of it. You know, you have more adoption necessarily. Well, it, it stands to reason that there's a correlation. Yeah, but that's like, that's the TSIA paradox of education, right? That we, we talked about several episodes ago that you know, on a report like this, you actually don't see product adoption show up at all, even though uh -huh. that was the one that everyone said that they were driving to as their top goal. Yeah, it's interesting. There's something there. There's something there. Well, we're going to figure this out over time. Another interesting factor we saw that we didn't find in other reports is that the methodology distinguishes between the low success and high success, like you just said, right? They broke the results into five groups based on the company's increases in revenue retention, decreases in support costs. So the ones that are performed the best in these areas could be separated from the ones that we did the worst. And that way Forrester, which they're really good at doing this kind of stuff, could see what the high performing, low performing groups did differently. Now that's, that's what we're really after. So what are we gonna learn from this? Well, I mean, frankly, I think that there, there's a lot that we can learn from this because it, it was not a small margin. Uh, the no, best performing groups had 40 times higher revenue, 16 times higher customer satisfaction, 36 times greater support reduction than the worst performing groups. And again, that's crazy. That's huge. That is, Thir yeah, 30, crazy. almost 40 times. And think about that. 40 yeah. times in support. I mean, that's a lot, especially when you're talking about support constantly being overwhelmed by calls. Well, and it's, it's not like the worst performing groups did terribly either. Like, I mean, no. their revenue still increased. It was up 0.5%. Their retention still increased. It was up 0.9%. Customer satisfaction increased around 2%. So it's not like they were in the negatives. They were still in the positives, which is very, very modest positives compared to those really high-performing groups. So you can see that, you know, the, the more successful you are, because it's, it's multiplicative. And, and the highest-performing groups were seeing increases of 20 to 30% in these same areas that the low-performing groups were seeing, you know, 05 to 2%. Yeah, no, that's staggering. And well, let's go back to what you just said. So no one was seeing decreases, right? Is that the case? Yeah, they were all seeing increases. That, I mean, that's, that's telling. Again, we're saying customer education is doing, it's, it's, it's work, it works. Um, but one of the things that I saw in here was that the high performing organizations did much better. That's what you just said, you know, 20 to 30%. Um, the key question of that is, what in the heck did education have to do with their success? What is it that they did right? 
Oh man, I don't know. No, I'm kidding. I mean, we <laughs> you better know. That's what you get paid for. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> this, it actually relates to something that we've seen in a lot of the other reports. The, the organizations that did well were the ones driving higher engagement with education. Engagement. Okay. Yeah, like they, they were getting more customers educated and trained. So their education utilization was 52% higher than the local farming groups. Yeah, that, that's at least a correlation between customers that educated their customers more and customers that they saw the incredible results. What did, you know, like necessarily, then I want to know, what did those companies actually do differently? Well, surprisingly, they didn't actually throw that much more money at the problem because you might think, oh, they just invested a lot more. Whoa, wait, wait, wait. So that's what they didn't do. They didn't throw more money they at the problem because that's they normal. Th- they threw more money at the problem, but not uh, significantly more money at the problem. So okay. in, in numbers, the low success organizations spend almost 700K annually on education efforts, while the high success orgs were around 774K. So yeah, it's an increase. Nothing. But it's, it's, yeah, it's kind of marginal. Like, do you want to spend $75,000 when you, you know, on top of the 700 that you've already spent? to have a 36 X <laughs> now again we don't know we don't this is this is correlation not causation but clearly what we're seeing is that uh you know when when their customers are really adopting customer education there is a correlation here with with higher success yeah they didn't just spend nine percent more like you like we could do the numbers there they invested more wisely it's like I guess two people that have money and they're going to do day trading in the stock market and they have one has a little bit more than the other, but one who has a little bit less ends up being more careful, cautious and ends up with a net uh, or maybe they're more aggressive and they make a net return that's way higher. So it's, it's being smart, right? They, they, instead of feeling like they didn't have those resources to accomplish anything, they were okay. Like outreach is value. We're grit. We're getting scrappy you know, with the same kind of resources and building strategic programs that drove the outcomes. And the high success orgs were the ones that had more formalized programs, right? They're not, and this is something that I see time and time again. And a good leader is going to say, now we got all this stuff. What are we actually trying to do? They're not constructing ad hoc stuff, which is, I see a lot of folks um, say, hey, we're just going to do a webinar on this and we're going to keep running that webinar. And, there, and, and there's no really no real assessment on, well, why would I do that? And what does it think, what is it going to do? That's a so, huge theme here. We're talking about customer education, building it as a program, not just doing it as an activity. Yeah, customer education acts with intentionality. Hell to the yes. I, I agree. I mean, it, it's about building intentional programs, not just ad hoc activities. And to your point, Dave, I, I think there are a lot of customer education leaders out there who they, they get under-resourced, Mm-hmm. and they've committed to a bunch of ad hoc activities. They're not thinking about what they do like a full program. They're not really pointing to the results. They're just measuring the activity that they performed. How many butts are in seats? How many webinars do we do? And then when they can't go back to their business and say, well, this actually drove some sort of impact, they can't show the ROI, then they continue to not get resources. So they continue to feel under-resourced. So they continue to just do those activities and they're not really growing their programs strategically. So I think the, the report takeaways here confirm what we've been saying for a while, uh, formalize your education programs. But second, it, it also confirms something that we, we say a lot, which is put the customer first. Put the customer so first, yeah. 
yeah, while, while all these programs focused on their business needs, the successful programs thought about customer outcomes and created content that met deeper customer needs. So it wasn't just like random videos, again, not ad hoc, uh, not just creating printouts. They were actually creating programs that were able to drive demand because customers saw them as valuable. I, I have a lot to say, but I'll, I'll be concise on this. That Why I like, start now, Dave? Oh gosh. Well, I'm just joshing. <laughs> I try. Come on. You know, I'm, I'm in the I'm in that boat with you. I am verbose, man. Let's go back to what one of the respondents said in this, the response of the survey. While we were looking for benefits to support and revenue, our main goal, the main goal is always education. And I put this in bold in our own notes. We have to emphasize how best to use the products, not the best way for us to make money off of them. And that's, I said in a lot of meetings that there's one of my favorite meetings. It's, it's more of like a go-to-market meeting and you know, Hey, we got a new feature. we got this new thing, got this new, new thing. Okay, great. You, you say this to me all the time. What's, what's in it for the customer? Why does this feature, why do I need to sit down and develop a curriculum for this module or for this product or for whatever? It's, it's not about, oh, we just want to make more money. It's what did the, what did this bring to the cust to the table for the customer? How does this make their life better? How does this decrease the amount of time they spend on doing some big, nasty, hairy task that they have to do at work and now they can automate? It's the customer. And that's, I think, I don't know about you, but I know for me, sometimes I feel at odds with my own organization where I, I, I'm going to say this, and this is a bold accusation. In a lot of cases, I just don't care about money. I don't care about revenue. What I care about is the customer pain. And that if the customer is experiencing some kind of a pain that I can alleviate through an intervention and I can teach them something and show them something and make it fun and interactive, then my job is done. And almost necessarily, if I did a good job at that, then the revenue will follow. But it can't be my focus. How do you feel? Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not that money doesn't matter. It's about the order of priorities. And, and to your yeah. point, you know, some of that's thinking about content, right? So don't, don't just teach the features. Don't just take the content first approach. Teach outcomes. Teach customers how to be better at their job. What are the jobs to be done? Uh, mm -hmm. Bill Kashar talks about that a lot. Jobs to be done. Jobs to be done. There's also an emphasis on providing digestible and self-guided training. So one of the report's findings here were... Um, what's getting utilized a lot. So for the high success uh, organizations, they were doing a lot of the same things as the low success organizations. They were all doing in-product training workshops, or sorry, in-person training workshops. They were all doing like brochures and handbooks and printouts. Yeah. Um, they were all, although fewer of them, but like similar percentages were doing like how-to videos. Um, that's great. But there were meaningful differences between those who were doing certification programs. The high success orgs were doing certification programs more than the low success ones. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting. And that actually contradicts some of what we saw in the skill jar report. Uh, hmm. There was also, yeah, interesting, right? Well, it's good to see contradictions, but, but let's, let's go a little further than that. Why? Why were we seeing the contradictions? Why do we think? Um, I think it might have something to do, again, with the sampling here. If we're looking at, because, well, okay, so the SkillJar report was looking at training completion rates. Yeah. So the hypothesis from the SkillJar report was, uh, I guess, one of two. Their, their takeaway was 
some people are probably just slapping the word certification on their program and or they're slapping a certificate on the end of content and expecting that that will increase completion rates and it's it's not it's doing the opposite but i think our alternative hypothesis was that when something is called a certificate or called a certification it is more likely to be longer and that's why completion rate is lower yeah 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 it stands to reason but this report's looking at it a little bit differently because it's this here it's not correlating it to completion rates it's complete it's a looking at high success versus low success organizations. So what it's saying is that those who invest in certification programs, whether those are online or in person, um, it's, it's has a higher correlation to that education program being successful. Yeah. Now some other areas where there was kind of a market difference between the successful and uh, less successful organizations was uh, higher success education programs published training documentation uh, they had online forums and communities. They had blogs. Uh, so they were doing more um, very scalable self-service activities, not just formal courses. And, you know, we've talked about this a lot. That was kind of one of the cornerstones when I was at Optimize, and we did Optiverse. It was about taking some of that course-based stuff and really putting it in the same ecosystem as the documentation, as the community. Um, and then the high-success organizations also tended to use courseware uh, with pre-built courseware like SCORM modules more often than the low success ones, although that was kind of the least utilized overall. Yeah, yeah. which there's a lot, there's a lot to that. Yeah, but Dave, I mean, I think there's also, there were some findings in here about just chunking a little bit more, like about yeah, not just having everything self-service, self-guided, but having it be digestible. So right, like one of the quotes in here that I, I took into the notes was uh, one of the respondents said, Taking the same information from longer courses and putting it in smaller courses yielded better results. We took a 90-minute course and broke it into five to 10-minute modules, which doubled the time customers spent consuming training and increased completion by 40%. So again, here we're back in line with some of the skill jar findings, which is shorter mm -hmm. equals higher completion. Yeah, I, and I definitely wanted to tap on this a little bit more deeply. Um, I've seen this like you have over time that it's, it's really obvious to me that if you chunk things up and you break things up, it makes it more palpable for users, right? They can say, oh, I've got five minutes between this next minute. I'm just going to sit down and watch this one video. And then they come back and finish the next one. If you have like, a, like, well, even with, for me, even within a course, I'll have small modules and I'll try to get them very tight. Uh, it, it helps. It, it actually not only helps the end user, it helps me because when I'm developing the content, I can be a lot more concise and have very dialed in and learning objectives and be very, you know, precise in what we're delivering and how to measure that. So there's benefit in chunking or micro learning. I think why, or we think why is that, you know, in inherent in that you're giving a learner more autonomy. You're making goals mm -hmm. more achievable. Again, I'm going to go back to what I talked about in an earlier podcast and about video games and about how they really take chunking. I mean, Rafe Koster, uh, he, he wrote a really great book on like game design and, and what are the, some of the premises behind it? And chunking is one of the things that they do in video game. You, you break things down into their smallest possible thing and then you, you group them together in uh, like mind or, you know, similar functions. And then you're learning as you go and you're assembling these things in a more of a kinesthetic, you know, okay, I did it. I could show you that I know how to do this. I could do that double jump, side hack, wall, run, weirdness, whatever you're trying to make, get me to do. Um, going back to the skill chair thing, you know, we're, we're definitely 
taking advantage of that same kind of modality. We're making things more achievable, easier to approach, easier to consume. Um, that also confirmed what Skilljar found um, that, you know, the support course, I'm sorry, I can't talk now. <laughs> um, just what you said, uh, course completion rates based on length. Um, the, the time of week long classroom training may be over forever and maybe more so because COVID's out, but you know, micro learning really helps. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's important to know this report came out before COVID-19. And if this report is also talking about uh, more chunked, more micro learning based, more self-service documentation, yeah. I, I think some of this is, is interesting because the way that Intellum goes to market um, is really as a customer experience platform. So part of their idea, um, and hopefully we'll hear from this if, if Chip comes on the show, uh, part of the idea is that they want to be the, the single service place for not just your courses, but your documentation, your articles, your virtual events, um, your blog posts, uh, all those things that you're doing to connect with customers that look or feel like uh, content training, education. It's a little bit broader than just being like an LMS where you just go and get a course. And I think a lot oh, of yeah. uh, customer training platforms are moving in that direction. But I, I think it, it comports with the idea, even though we know that these percentages are not actually exactly accurate, but it comports with the whole 70-20-10 idea of getting you know formal versus informal versus social learning. Yeah, that's really good. And I, I will, I, that resonates with me too, is that I like that approach. One of the conversations mm -hmm. I had recently was, you know, we have several different places where content can, do, can go. And I get concerned when we have education-ish content that ends up on a support portal because I'm not able to, um, it, it, I, I'm not able to decompose aggregate data and get to an individual and watch their journey and aggregate that up to an account level. I get aggregate aggregate. It's just a person and I can look at like what they went to, but I don't know what they did with it. It's not like the reports I'd get out of some other platforms like a, an Intellum or a Skilljar or a Thought Industries platform where you're, you can actually see more of like drop rates or when does people not do something or when did they do it? Now they're looking at, I can see, okay, they looked at that article, they read this thing, they watched this video, they looked at the score module, it's all there. And then I can tell the story with data. Absolutely. And, you know, thinking, thinking of data, maybe that's a good transition here into uh, starting to wrap up. We're not just wrapping up this episode, but we're wrapping up a, a marathon Series. of, yeah, consuming data about the state of our customer education industry. And so I, I really appreciate all the organizations that have put together this information. This report specifically from Forrester is available on Intellum's website. You can go to intellum.com slash Forrester hyphen report if you'd like to check it out. And they also did a webinar with the uh, lead analyst of, of this report where he walked through some of the findings and it's, uh, it's definitely worth checking out. But, but Dave, maybe when we back out of this report specifically and just think about all four that we've, we've looked at, what are some of the main takeaways that we might want to highlight after, you know, going through the state of our industry? Oh goodness. Well, we, we've learned a lot about how um, we're definitely thinking heavily about things like ROI, right? What is the value? Can I calculate the value that I get out of the system? That's exceptionally important, important, and a lot of companies are thinking about uh, what's my overall return on an investment. Absolutely. I, I would add to that that customer education in general is 
is on the rise. We're just seeing more of a trend towards people investing in these programs, um, you know, both at the, the small company and, and the large company stage. It's just becoming a more common function that, you know, not yeah. everyone had, what, 10 years ago. Well, and that's really good. And I'm starting to see that the industry has is supporting our, our hypothesis. I'll say it's our hypothesis because we kind of grouped in together that there's definitely gradations in, um, you know, the crawl, walk, run, the growth, the maturity of a customer education function. And we see that up to about that 500 person mark, you know, with about 2000 customers, that's kind of the inflection point. I'd like to see where this goes next year, but that to me, that's important because then I can know if I'm engaging with a company that has, 2000 or less customers, about 500 employees, they're going to be of this ilk for customer education. These are the things they should be focusing on in their, their program. Yeah. Above and 500 above, it's very different. Absolutely. And, and, and to that point, as you think about the maturity of your own program, it's worth thinking about the incentives uh, about what your program drives, right? So I think one of the strong themes that we saw here was this tension between customer education that supports product adoption and customer education that generates revenue and really you know, even from an earlier stage, thinking about that fee versus free or fee to free yeah. spectrum becomes really important. Yeah. And I think one other thing that, and that, that's very important, especially in times of COVID fee versus free, you know, we're moving to an online modality now. And I think what these reports are showing us is that the industry is definitely embracing that. Uh, even though there's different international ambiances and overtones to like what, you know, what's socially normal and what you should do. Uh, we're seeing a lot more adoption of the virtual instructor led and the on-demand plays, which definitely is resonant with the overall goals of customer education. Yeah. And, and so the last one that I would add to that actually goes straight to the heart of adoption. It's that I think every single one of these reports had some indicator that while customer education is on the rise, training uptake itself is still relatively low and has a ton of opportunity through better marketing, through, um, different course structures, different modalities, just has, has more room to increase the uptake and consumption of training. Yeah, and I wanna drop, drop one last thing in here. I think this is really important. That going back to the, I think there's a skill jar survey where you talked about the biggest disconnect. 96% of respondents said that customer training was important to their company. That was the thought industry survey. I'm sorry. Thank you for correcting me. I'll cut that out. So in the, the thought industry survey, this is a big, I'll just repeat this. Out of the thought industry surveys, I think this one was really interesting. And, and I wanted to use this kind of a capstone. 96% of people that had responded to that survey said that customer training and customer education was important. And 14% believe that their customers aren't adequately or adequately trained. So a lot of them don't. This is a call to action for us. You've heard all these things that we did to aggregate what's going on in these reports and what people are thinking about. But we have, to your point, Adam, I think you just said this a few moments ago, we have a lot of runway. We have a lot of things we could do. We have a lot of tools in our toolkit. We need to get out there and learn, grow, learn from our peers, learn from other industries, you know, pull in the diversity card, get people who are instructional designers from different marketplaces, um, cross-pollinate. We, we need to learn more. And, and again, thanks to all of these companies and organizations for getting us the data so now we can work with it. Absolutely. I'm so glad. I mean, the fact that we have the luxury of looking at four state of the industry reports is uh, not a luxury that we've always had. And that in itself, actually, not to get too meta, but that, that tells us that the state of customer education is growing. And Dave, you and I talked a few episodes ago, it might've been 
days, weeks, or months ago. I, I've completely lost track of time. Um, <laughs> Got a lot. We, you know, we talked about how this is a time to shine for customer educators. And, and I would say that's not true just because of the very unique situation that we find ourselves in right now where customer education can, can drive a mission for organizations. But I, I think it's true kind of writ large in where the industry is going. This is a time to shine for those of us who practice customer education because we have the opportunity to demonstrate the impact that we have on organizations and, and the high performing teams are the ones who are figuring out ways to do that. So you know, I really appreciate the whole community that we work with, um, our listeners, customer education leaders that really are, are driving that and the organizations that put together these reports because they, more than anyone, are really trying to help us prove the impact of what we do. So amazing and thank you to everyone who uh who did all the hard research and surveying absolutely and that's a good seg to wrap up on if you want to learn more we have a podcast website did you know customer education (laughs) i'll check it out sometime check it out sometime uh you can find their show notes and other material and of course all of these podcast episodes are there writ large download share and enjoy on twitter i am at dave darrington And I am at Elon Musk. Don't at me. Oh, gosh. No, what are you really? I'm at Avermescu. Okay. (laughs) Special thanks to Alan Cota for our theme music. (laughs) And if this helped you out, you can help us out by subscribing in Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Stitcher, Spotify. We did the analytics. That's where most people listen to us. But wherever you listen to us, please subscribe because it helps. Leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts because that helps even more. Those things really, 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 really help expose our podcast to other people and they help us keep this little thing we're doing going. And to our audience, thank you for joining us. Go out, educate, experiment, read, lot, read lots of journal articles. Drink lots of your- <laughs> Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Thanks.